Welcome to the Great Base Tennis Podcast, Episode 65. I'm Steve Smith with my partner in crime, Brandon Flanagan. We're going to talk about interior design, actually memorabilia. Why don't you start, Brandon, with the FM Performance Center, Boynton Beach, FM Tennis Performance Center. It's an amazing, great vibe. Just, just what's on the walls brings back so many stories from the past. We really swerved off the path here of forehands and backhands to interior design, but I think it's a place that, uh, as Steve said, I said 99% of tennis players would would really appreciate the way it's designed, and he said no, 100%. And so as you walk in, we've got all types of tennis memorabilia on the walls, everything from a evolution of the tennis racket, which is quite interesting, to go from the earlier the earlier wooden rackets all the way up to, I think, the Roger Federer Wilson Pro Staff that came out a couple of years ago. And then as you're kind of walking in the entrance, you see a, a huge photo of, of my personal favorite tennis player is Andre Agassi. And it says, hit the ball as loud as you can. And of course, it's a backhand and he's, he's lifted so much that he's elevated off the ground. But for me, Agassi is my favorite based on, you know, what he did for the sport in terms of the image going from, you know, the very preppy all white country clubs to bringing a bit of style and the neon colors and the long bleach blonde hair, which we found out later, of course, was not hair at all. It was just a wig, but he was, was one of the main inspirations for me getting involved in tennis early on. Um, so that's a, a pretty cool piece. Um, but as you kind of continue down the hallway, we have all these sports illustrated covers and we'll go through those one by one and, and kind of tick off some stories, but it's pretty cool just to go online and take a look at all the moments in history that have been big enough in the sport of tennis to grant a Sports Illustrated cover. I thought about getting one that said, is tennis dying? And that was about 2003, I think, but I decided against it. But it's interesting. I remember, I remember that. It was or, 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 the, yeah. the red clay or the, the orange cover with yeah. the tennis ball. Yeah. But I think as you're, as you're walking in, you also see a, kind of an uh, homage to Wimbledon. And I know, Steve, you've talked about this time and time again, good for the listeners to, to hear you talk about it, but there's a, a Wimbledon, official Wimbledon poster, and it looks very, very much like they're just having tea. And in the background is a grass tennis court. But I think the way you tell that, that history of tennis is, is the best. So I'm going to pass it over to you. Well, Sir Walter Clapton Wingfield, the tennis court's based on the size of his backyard. The rules were put in place in 1873 with, I always tell people when we talk about the serve is, uh, it's called a serve because it was a garden party in the, the servant put the ball and play from the side of the court. But I like what you have on top as you walk in is the same saying from uh, Kipling that's uh, posted in the two-minute waiting room before the players enter center court. If you meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. And I remember as a player, you know, being coached by you many years ago, you would add dot, 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 and still be a champion. Yeah. If you treat those two imposters just the same with – uh, in the uh, English version, the way imposters is spelled, with uh, it works either way. But if, yeah, kids just need to just really understand it, not just a, just a sound bite, but the depth of it. But also if is the biggest word in the dictionary. Yeah, we interviewed Rob Krychek, don't be an ifer. <laughs> if, if you did this and if you did that. I think there's probably a huge part of the tennis playing population that that don't know about the waiting room. I don't think there's a whole lot of coverage every year, but 
it's pretty cool that they have to wait in that area before they enter center court. And the left is, and I could be messing this up in terms of, terms of direction, the left is the last year's uh, women's singles champion, and the right is the previous year's men's singles champion. And then right in the middle is that quote in an aluminum, aluminum sign, and that's really all they can look at as they walk out to center court. Pretty cool. Yeah, Wimbledon. Um, I was there one time with, with Doug McCurdy, an American. He was working with the ITF. And before the ITF moved to the Queens Club, their offices were at Wimbledon. So I was in his office. It was not during the tournament. I go, this is a really cool office. And he goes, well, let me show you a real cool office. And we went across the hall, and the gentleman, you could look out his window. You could, through his window, you saw center court. Wow. With Sports Illustrated, it's interesting. I'll go back to the years um, and all the all the covers that you could choose. It's like you know, like say a Jordan or a Gretzky, Ali. And do the history on that? Who's been on the cover the most times? I think the oldest one that we have is the Althea Gibson. If I were to look at the date, I think that's the oldest one we have. Yeah, I was helping uh, Dave Fish. He asked me. Uh, Dave Fish is someone that both Brandon and I've had a lot to do with when. We talked a little about his Harvard tennis camp years ago. He retired as a Harvard coach, but he's a proponent of uh, spec rackets and uses the term bridge sports. And I think a hey, more power to pickleball. They're having fun. It's great. But to play spec tennis, it really is just a spinoff of um, platform, not platform tennis, but paddle tennis. Platform tennis where we grew up in upstate New York, you know, it's the cage and the ball can go off and, it hit. You know, I don't know enough. I've played it a couple of times. But I don't really know that sport. But Roosevelt uh, thought the tennis courts were too big for public parks. So he wanted them to go from service line to service line and have more courts and three different places in the United States. Um, and there's one still out in Venice Beach, but in the New York area where Gibson grew up, there was one put in her backyard. So you play with a... Uh, and spec tennis is very much the same, although the racket's different now. And they're they're recommending to play with an orange ball or a green dot ball. And you can even play on a pickleball court, but just service line to service line. Bobby Riggs and Pancho Gazal started that way, but Althea Gibson in her backyard, you play with a punctured tennis ball and it's just all serve and volley. Interesting. It's all serve and volley. And with uh, Gibson, um, the men were all away at war during World War II. If you've seen the movie uh, A League of Their Own, mm-hmm. Tom Fr- Tom Hanks with Madonna, there's no crying in baseball. Well, um, yeah, so Thea Gibson, she could throw a ball. And it was uh, certainly so unfair for an African-American at that time, even someone who I later spent a lot of time with, Andrew Buxton, who was Jewish. And there's many clubs that blacks were not allowed, Jewish people were not allowed. And they they teamed up and they did well playing doubles together. Um uh, yeah, Althea Gibson, um, she could she could serve and she could come in and volley. People should get on YouTube and look at old film. Oh, yeah, Althea she's Gibson. incredible. And just talk about hardship and what she overcame. Um, the backstory is like, you know, before Arthur Ashe, there was Althea Gibson. Right. So. Before you enter this kind of hallway of a Sports Illustrated covers, there's another photo of my, my main man, Andre Agassi. And it's uh it's him at Wimbledon, so it kind of fits in with the theme. But right underneath it says mowing the lawn. And he's hitting a backhand again, he's off the ground. And there's, you know, the old saying, a picture can tell a thousand words. I mean you can look at the technique from that 
backhand photo, everything from the grip to the chin being under the shoulder, you know, super long hitting zone to be able to lift that explosively and rotate that much to get off the ground is one thing, but you can see, even see the position of the legs. I tell people that they really should read Mike Agassi's book before they read Andre's book. I do think in some ways, Andre threw Mike under the bus. Um, you know, his father says now that you should have played golf. You should have played baseball. You could have played longer, but it's interesting. Just the stories of, in, I think of uh, Peter Graff with Steffi. So the, the two fathers meet and, and right away, Mike Agassi saying that Steffi, she should have had a two in a package. She should have two. Right? So I guess they started, it's in the book. They started arguing right away, but wow. with Mike, um, Andre's is he's the youngest of four. Um, Rita, um, Phil, and then Tammy. Tammy went to Tyler Junior College, so I watched her practice every day for a year. And she was a fighter. Not only did she fight her way up the tennis ladder, she played at Texas A&M after TJC. Then she um, had to fight through cancer. But you just you know you watch one sibling hit the ball, and then Andre hit the ball, and it's like, how did this happen? Well, Andre being the youngest of the four, Mike was uh, some immigrant from Iran. He's working as a bellhop in Chicago. He finds his way to Las Vegas, and he saved enough money where he's going to buy a house. Amazing story. So he never, he's with a realtor. He never sees the house. You know, they're going to walk, the real estate agent's going to walk up the front door, and uh, Mr. Agassiz, he goes, I want to see the backyard first. So he marks off just walking the distance, you know, 120 by 60, and he never saw the inside house. He goes, I'll take it. <laughs> That's a man with a plan. And really, I think out of fatigue, um, out of survival as well. So people now know about the souped up ball machine and a minimum of 2,500 balls a day. But the oldest three children didn't have that. I mean, they all have different backgrounds, like all of this. Like Rita, um, she took lessons from Pancho Gonzalez. I mean, she was married to Pancho Gonzalez and they had a child together. Um, but Andre, how did somebody learn to hit the ball so well? I don't think anyone ever has used their legs as well as he has. Yeah, that's true. How he just uncoils from the ground. And you know, when he first came on the scene, um, he really didn't hit a conventional volley. Way right. back when, when people would hit a swing volley, they'd say, oh, you're not supposed to do that. And, you know, now that's readily acceptable. But I think some things like one-up, one-back doubles should not be readily acceptable. But the ball came so fast that, you know, he held the racket higher, longer, to get the speed of the racket falling, hit it away from his body. He found uh, with, and also too fatigue, when the ball just keeps coming and coming and coming. One of the best times, we've talked to Jim Lair, the best times to talk to an athlete is when they're really fatigued. But also too, not only will they listen because they're, they can't talk, they're just breath in, breath out, but when they're really exhausted, they become efficient. They eliminate the extra moving parts. Right. But, um, yeah, there's a guy with Agassi. Um, he really didn't have the first serve. You know, he didn't have a toss too far over his head. Uh, Vic Braden asked one time in an interview, uh, Andre, why don't you why don't you come to the net? He said, Vic, have you ever seen me volley? <laughs> and um, he one time was playing against Steve Denton. And uh, he's playing with Craigstein. Denton's playing with Kevin Curry. Agassi throws the ball over his head. And he stays back, and Denton just out of intimidation, he catches the ball and goes, "Really? <laughs> you did that right in the middle of the match." But I mean, 
What a clean ball striker, though. I saw him play one time against Nadal. He's 36. And, he, you know, if he could have just come in because he would open up the court. Right. And he was really, he could just hit through people. It's really interesting. And obviously now there's uh, there's so much uh, tennis being taught with uh, scaled down courts, scaled down rackets. And that's an example of you have photos of Andre hitting balls when he was five, six years old with a, almost a full size it looks like a full size to me anyways, a pretty big, heavy wooden racket with yellow balls. And he figured it out. You know, he's got incredibly efficient swings. You know, different regimes. Uh, there's been different people in charge of player development. Rob Krychek put this together. His son was, if not one, he was one of the top tennis players in the 18s in the, in the U.S. And he had read where Craig Tiley was at that time in charge of player development at Tennis Australia. He said, it's going to take me 10 years to develop a coaching network. So Rob calls the USTA at that time. Paul Roder was in charge and said, you know, he's my name, third person. Steve Smith already has a network. And we ended up meeting with Paul and we met with him uh, for almost five hours. And then we met with the second and third people in charge. And number two and number three, they weren't too interested Um you know, he actually had one of them call call me up and apologize because I had done my homework on what they had both said at recent tennis teaching conferences. So I have this film that everybody has now, but back in the day when I had an academic program, I had lab assistants. And one of them, it varied from time to time, but their job was to make sure that they taped everything that was on TV. Wow. Um so we would, on a VHS, we would just film. And I mean, I go back to reel-to-reel and beta, VHS, DVD. Uh, but anyway, with the film, it's young Pete Sampras. And it's Robert Lansford feeding balls, smiley Pete. And he hits a forehand ground stroke, forehand approach. He hits a two-handed backhand volley, overhead. I think it's just four shots. I mean, I've seen it so many times. So I was showing that, and one of the assistants um, said, you're not skill testing a 10-year-old on a full-size court. And I just, uh, you know, I was going to let her ask it a second time, a little experience, and she asked it a second time. And then she said, because I have two children who play, and in Florida, they were both ranked pretty high. Even in the, you know both of them, Mikhail mm-hmm. and Connor. Mikhail in the early age groups. Uh, you know, he's easily one of the best in Connor in the older age groups in Florida. Who's, you know, I get, you know, one or two, both of them on the one on the beginning side, one on the end. So she said, "Is that your son?" I said, "No, that's Pete Sampras." <laughs> so I, I do think that you can skill test a a young player on a, a full size court. As we're going through all these names of kind of tennis players from the past, Bjorn Borg, Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, talk about impersonating tennis players on the court with strokes. Mikhail is the best at that. He could do Bjorn Borg and McEnroe, like, unbelievable. Yeah, before I knew anything about tennis, I used to do the same thing. Now I know a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I went time with Jimmy. Uh, never, got, never got a chance to do it with Bjorn, but I did my Jimmy Connors impersonation, impression for Jimmy. <laughs> he didn't think it was too funny. <laughs> I mean, I could just go on and on. With, well, we do often, rainy days, we'll take a group of juniors, and I say, okay, name a player, name a country, or name a college. And I just tell a story. Right. I one time was in a um, Stowe, Vermont, top notch. Actually, it's funny. Um, I was asked to just 
stand behind the counter and one of the coaches and someone say, hey, could you just watch the desk for a minute? I go, yeah. So Connors comes in. That was when the NTR just came out. Are you 1-0, 2-0, or 2-5, 3-5? So Connors shows up and uh, I said, well, excuse me, sir. And it was just right there on the counter. I said, if you'd read the uh, the chart, you could tell me what level you are and we could try to find a game for you. So I just <laughs> pretended I didn't know Jimmy. But anyway, Woody Blocker, who was a very good tennis player, Connors was complaining about his back, and Woody, Woody said, if you just, Jimmy being lefty, he said, if you wouldn't toss the ball so far over your head, you toss it out to the left, and he went ballistic. You know, my record, I'm so sick and tired of people telling me about my serve. And, uh, actually, uh, Jimmy used to uh, not be a member of the Vic Braden fan club. He's one of the only few who wasn't a member of the Vic Braden fan club, because Vic used to say that, that uh, Jimmy serve only goes 74 miles an hour, 72 miles an hour, but his grunt goes 105. <laughs> yeah. But no, the the photos, I, I would like to actually do that with you sometimes. Just go to Sports Illustrated and just see all the ones there. And then also just like the captions. With, uh, the captions are great for, I think, for a couple different reasons. I mean, they're usually pretty, they use puns and it's pretty clever and funny, but also you can see in other parts of the front cover of the magazine is uh, moments in in uh, in uh, sport history at the same time that was going on. So there's a cover of Navratilova and on the, on the front, I think it says in West Germany reigns in soccer, you know, so that's obviously a bit dated now, but it's interesting. There's a snapshot in time really, but yeah, you can go on sports illustrated uh, covers.com and you can buy these incredible prints of, uh, of any, any of the, of the covers that they have come out with over the years. Here's a random story for you. Um, upstate New York. Ran and I are both from the country, Hicks versus Slicks. So my mother sells a house. I'm the youngest of six, and she went back to work when I went to elementary school, first grade. During the war, World War II, she was pulled out of college, and she worked in the War Department as a secretary. So when she, when I went back to school, or I went to school for the first time, she went back to work. So she sold our house uh, without real estate in 1964, and then she got into real estate, and she was very successful at it. Never wrote anything down. And um, one of the longtime family friends, Jack Lyon, started, everybody called her Ty for Tycoon. So she sold a house to Rita Mae Brown in small town upstate New York. Used to say it's a postcard, but I guess you have to say now it's a screensaver. It's a real beautiful place, small lake. And anyway, Rita Mae Brown's a famous author, but one time, uh, you know, the rumor is that she was married to, to Martina, but Martina was with uh, Rita Mae Brown, Casanova, New York. Interesting. That's a bit of an upstate New York history for you. <laughs> so, yeah, Martina is on a cover there. And, I, and, and just doing a little bit of research, this is actually during the pandemic. I wrote a blog post about seven tennis pandemics. Just some, and to just to use to use the word pandemic is probably not fair in some respects, but essentially something that spreads. Um, spreads like wildfire. And, and one of them was Martina really being the first player to use a team of people, not just one coach, but multiple people helping her with her game. And, and one of those was Nancy Lieberman, Nancy the, Lieberman basketball the player. Yeah. professional basketball player and a really, really good one. And, um, to really help her with her physical off court training, she was pretty critical of her routines off the court. I guess it wasn't really much of anything. And at the time that might've been the standard, I think not too, not too long before, uh, People were smoking cigarettes on the side of the court, so drinking Coke. But um, 
But no, Nancy Lieberman, Dr. Renee Richards. And initially she was mocked for having this huge group of people helping her and traveling her. Usually a player would go on the tour without, without a coach at all or a hitting partner or anything. And then what followed was just an incredible run of dominance. And, I remember uh, the, you know, I got to know the late Tim Gullison quite well. And I used to, you ride in first class or you ride in coach? Because she had so many people on her team. Actually, Dave Anderson, who's been on the podcast, has uh, been part of what we do for so many years now, close to 40, um, at his tennis facility, the flagship, I think of it as his tennis facility, uh, Club Corp, um, it's the flagship in Dallas, Brookhaven. And there's a court that was built for Martina. It's, she practiced there way back in the 80s. Interesting. Had to have wide fences, I'm sure, for the lefty slice. Well, you just think about Neratulova, the players from the past. Um, heard Vince Spadia say this one time. You were you know, making fun of old school. And, and Vince, who I would never say I coached Vince Spadia, but you know, he was uh, a student, very short term. And I was working with him under Robbie Seguzo, who had his own tennis academy with the wife, Seguzo Bassett. And Vince said, there's a lot of things they did better than us. And really, right. when you think service line in, Right. But it's, you know, it was the times, it was the rackets. I mean, I always tell people in the United States at one time, initially you couldn't be ranked until you're 13 years old. Right. It's just reps too. I mean, look at uh, Djokovic beating Medvedev in the Paris Masters. He was serving and volleying a lot and he he was having more success than he did uh, when he lost him at the U.S. Open. So if these guys were to do it more. but Yeah, like if they didn't change the grass at Wimbledon, the the first year they had changed the grass, no Bandy and Hewitt. Where in the final, there was not one point where someone served in volley. Yeah. Not one point. And coming back to old school versus new school, there's another photo of Bjorn Borg. And I, every time I see Bjorn Borg, I almost have to think about the Bjorn Borg-Roger Federer comparison video. We would watch that every summer camp just to show the kids that, you know, old school mechanics are essentially yeah, just go at to the YouTube. end of the day. YouTube, a, plug it in. It's a great clip, but it's a photo of Borg. Um, I might be... Uh, butchering the date, but I think it's 1980, the date of the cover. But it's an open stance forehand. And there's a, a lot of people who are being taught in 1980 that were being told that, you know, you couldn't hit the ball with an open stance forehand. And then now people today saying you should never hit the ball with a close stance or a neutral stance forehand. So I think there's so many more similarities in the way that players played back then to the way they hit the ball now. And there's always that kind of one new... Yeah, it's like hot thing to focus on. It's like uh, Big Bill and Little Bill, Bill Tilden, Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson had an extreme grip. Um, Kim Wittenberg, we need to get Kim Wittenberg on a podcast. Kim Wittenberg, uh, untapped. Borg did not have a Western grip, but kept, right. because of the way he had his elbow up and the way he closed the racket face, people just said, oh, he has a Western grip. Uh, before, that's one thing that has improved. It's, it's gone too extreme with the grip, but the forehand's improved because people used to teach with one grip and it used to be 180-degree swing, penny on edge, shake hands one way, shake hands the other way, right. point the racket at the fence behind you, point the racket at the fence in front of you, and that's 180-degree swing at a 20-degree court. But, I mean, I could tell Borg stories forever with, um, you know, you I mean, I was born in 1954. Borg, I believe, is uh, 56. And, you know, just you just read and, and just sit back and Borg 
unbelievable. But I think based on that hockey photo you have, you used to have hair like Borg too, which is yeah, pretty yeah. amazing. With uh, back in the seventies, um, that was the thing. But with Borg, um, I talked to Mark Hamlin the other day, talking about Casanova, New York. So we grew up together playing hockey, and and he loved sports. And I said, you know, if tennis was booming, and he, like so many people in their twenties, didn't really know what he wanted to do. And I said, hey. You're an athlete, you got great people skills, you should uh, get into tennis. And he, and he has had his long career in tennis. He's uh, in Germany now, been there for years. So the Swedes were doing so well. They had six guys in the top 10. So Hamlin and I, we went to Stockholm for a week. We drove up from Germany. And so we were told to take booze because booze is so expensive. I've gone to many different countries, and Russia was bubble gum, and the old Czechoslovakia was tennis ball, new, new tennis balls. So we drive, so we have this old, little car, a little Japanese car. I go, Hamlin, we need to have a German car. But so we drive up, and we, I buy two cases of booze. And this one gentleman was so nice to us. I say, hey, come out of the parking lot, I have a gift for you. So you just give two bottles. He said, why don't you guys come back tonight? And it was the first Wimbledon it was during the first Wimbledon that Borg had not played. And, you know, there's many things to that story. It's like, you know, okay, the guys climbed Mount Everest five times. He was in the finals six times in a row. So anyway, we went back to the club that night, and Borg was practicing <laughs> with, with Berglund and, and, and one other, Leonard Berglund's coach and one other person. But actually Mark McCormick, the late Mark McCormick, um, just a brash American, he wrote the book, um, what they don't teach in the Harvard Business School. And he, I mean, he started IMG. So um, Borg, one year after, he wanted to play. And Mark McCormick had told him that he'd get him a wild card. At that time, there was no such thing as a wild card. Hmm. But McCormick, with his uh, golfing background, keep, keep plugging Casanova in New York tonight, Bob Trump Jr. is my age. His father was Arnold Palmer's ghostwriter. So... At golf, if you win the Masters, for example, you're in the Masters the rest of your life. Mm, you just mm -hmm. show up and go, okay, you won this thing, you're in. But Borg, uh, his intentions were to play the year after. But it was it was just kind of intriguing you know, to be in Sweden, just trying to find out what are they doing to be so successful. And so we're watching Borg practice, and, and the, the club had closed. Of course, in that time of the year in Sweden, you know, they have these special windows because the sun doesn't go down until midnight. Hmm. Well, the Swedes, I mean, such a such an incredible run they had during that era. But I think a lot of that was attributed to the the, uh, the mini tennis, which then the LTA brought over um, shortly after. But uh, so there is obviously there's so many benefits to getting kids to rally. And so no, for sure. I mean, you don't rally. You know, and I think that. It, you know, people can be hooked once they can start to rally. Oh yeah, it's yeah, it's addicting. So I mean, that that's where you, you know, initially you can be too fanatical about teaching skill. Right. Just let the kid have some fun and rally ball back and forth. One other thing they did, um, Percy Roseberg, you know, he's famous for his background in tennis teaching. He he didn't train. He didn't change Borg from a one hander to a two hander, but he did change Edberg. But the Swedes at one time, had they called it animators. Just like we in this country, without even trying, we had all these dads basically 
because way back when it wasn't fair for girls. If a girl played sports, they were a tomboy. Um, you don't even hear that word anymore. But 10,000 animators to, to be able to demonstrate a basic forehand, backhand, and get people playing. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, so Borg was a mystery. But then when Vlander came along, and then he won. And then Sundstrom and Nystrom and it just Jared. It was just amazing. Uh, but there's a lot to be said about psychology. It's like when Roger Bannister in 1954 broke the four-minute mile, people said it never could be done. I think it was four times within the same year hmm. that people broke it. So th- that's where, um, you know, I could just elaborate upon if, if, if you think you can, you can. Right. Similar with uh, Becker and Steak, right? Yeah, that's one of my favorite stories is that uh, Boris Becker wins Wimbledon in 85. I was in Germany. And then I was at a Davis Cup tie in July, right after that. But Michael Steak, they were eight and eight in juniors. And Steak had gone, gone off to university, and he went one semester. And he convinced his parents, you know, if, if, he, if Becker can win Wimbledon, I can be a pro. But five years later, he beat Becker in Wimbledon final. So cool. With, um, I think another interesting thing about Borg... Um, is the effect of the two-handed backhand and how so many players were one-handed. I think you can probably say, well, that's a bit conflated by the change in the racket technology, but, but you know, he, he was so, so popular in the seventies. Not that I'm speaking from experience. I wasn't born yet, but just uh, the popularity of him and Chrissy ever and Jimmy Connors. And then to see the effect of that on the next generation of the Agassiz and Cricksteins and, you know, go all the way down the list. Yeah. When I first got into tennis, um, you know, there had been players in the past that had a two-handed backhand, been two-handed on both sides. There's players, um, Beverly Baker flights, she hit two forehands. So it's not like there's anything new, but right. but then it just, it was the tennis boom. I mean, what happened was the tiebreaker put tennis on TV. Jimmy Connors, with his personality, he became pretty much the um, the Muhammad Ali of tennis. Tennis, right. tennis just boomed, and now it's... It's totally the opposite. Where now it's the one-hander, but actually, board playing hockey, uh, it's just amazing to me that all hockey players, on their if they sh- they shoot left-handed, it's just the opposite. They shoot right-handed, but their bottom hand is an eastern forehand grip, and their top hand is, is you know continental. That racket's incredible. The the Dunne racket, the black, uh, red, and orange, and the, how long the grip is compared to other wooden rackets at the time. We have that hanging on the walls here uh, yeah, somewhere love, as well. I love all the old rackets you have up with. Um, back in the day, what the tennis players would do, I think of John Newcomb, for example, you know, he used Rawlings, he used Slazinger uh, for sure. I mean, uh, some of them were using a different racket on every continent because when they would show up in Australia, they okay, we're sponsored by this racket. Oh, wow. Interesting. Um, talk about being tough. It's like, yeah. you know, not only... Now people have someone traveling with them, stringing to the string them, and they'll change their tension based on the altitude and yeah, I mean the, top, the temperature. The top players used to play all three events just so they could have meals. I mean, it was amateurs. Amazing. There was no money in the game until it boomed in '68. Even then, if you look at the money that uh, some of the best players of that era made, it's pales in comparison to today. Yeah, I mean, Connor's coming down the scene when he would be fined and be suspended. He, he, he was, he's breakthrough guy where he can make more money playing exos. 
Yeah, and uh, you've talked about that before, I'm sure, on the podcast, but just it's so interesting, the history of tennis, that they would rather play some of these exhibitions or the history of world team tennis versus the Grand Slams and how not, uh, you know, Grand Slams, how many Grand Slams a player wins, you know, really hasn't been the metric for for uh, players' greatness for that long of a period of time. Yeah, we get back to that, the Grand Slams in tennis history. His, tennis history is very complex. We, John Lloyd, who's basically the same age as Connors, that age group, when they got into tennis as kids, um, and that's where you have to think really respect people that are playing, say, volleyball or track and field. There's so many people in sports where they they know they're not going to make very much money. You know, I mean, to really digress, I think that right. this country, like women's basketball, I mean, it's like when you go to high school and there's a varsity game and a JV game. I think the it's no secret that the men are getting bigger crowds in the NBA than the women in the WNBA. But it should be like a varsity and a JV. I mean, there should be two teams out of Miami, and and that's really where the money should go to support women's tennis. Right. Or women's, and that's, I guess, basketball. Right. Women, women's right. tennis, that's another whole deal. Um, the money they make in comparison to other sports. But coming back to Grand Slams, like Jimmy Connors was banned in 1974 from playing um, – the French, because he's a contract athlete, started to play with the Baltimore Banners. Uh, Bill Reardon, his manager from Maryland, was managing that team. And um, so he was banned. He wasn't allowed to play the French. So he didn't go back for five years. The players basically, if you look it up, I mean, I'd be off track guessing, but I think Borg played the Australian once. Right. Um, Connors, uh, I mean, I'm going to guess twice. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, that's really, and I could be wrong on this, but I think that's where Djokovic has dominated the most. I mean, and well, Agassi as well, where they collected their most Grand Slams. But so to think that that's the the best way to measure a player's greatness. It used to be right before Christmas as well. It was in December. If you look in the record books, there was one year it was held twice because you know it was held in December, then it skipped December and went to January. So it was thirteen months later. Hmm. Coming back to women's tennis, uh, there's a photo of Venus Williams as well, and the caption's great. It says, it's 1997, and it said, braids. Uh, well, I don't know if this is a caption or just a photo, but I think um, the photo is her with the braids and the uh, and, bra- and braces. So she's she's young enough to still have braces, and, and uh, she's someone who lives in the area, at least spends you know some of her time here. I think it's incredible what she's accomplished, obviously, to say the least, but she does train at a city facility in... Palm Beach Gardens. It's probably one of the nicest city facilities in the country. They've won many awards. I'm sure you've been there. But I, uh, I remember playing there years ago. They've recently renovated. It's it's beautiful. And uh, some of our uh, some of our students were playing a, a middle school tennis match there, and she was training. And they sent me a video of her, and I go, she's playing left handed. So part of her training was playing left handed, which from a from of course from a technical standpoint can really help. Uh, for the two-handed backhand, but then, of course, from a physical standpoint, players are doing so much with their dominant arm. And uh, one thing I always will tell players when we're working with them, just kind of partially joking but partially being serious, is just try brushing your teeth with your left hand. And I had a, a very, very smart... And then the, the nice thing about tennis, of course, is you, you do get a chance to meet so many different people from so many different professions and a lot of very intelligent people from all walks of life. And and one of my students says, yeah, I brush my teeth with my left hand every night. It's really good for your brain. Wow. 
And so it's, I always tell people, just brush your teeth with your left hand. And, and uh, it's, a, it's a, nice little, a nice little skill. But to see her practice left-handed, a lot of the parents say, that's not Venus Williams. She's not left-handed. That's definitely not her. Then she switched back to right-handed. But uh, it's incredible, you know, what she's done. And um, the likelihood of her winning another major tournament is probably very small. But it would be great to see her continue to have success. I love to see her just keep playing. With, yeah. Uh, for her to stay in the, like say, the top 104, to be straight into the Grand Slams, that's doable for a few more years for sure. With um, Hopman used to have his players, Harry Hopman, the great Mr. Hopman had his players play squash with their opposite hand. You know, certainly overloading, you know, if you're just, oh, yeah. you know, that's certainly a problem. Well, I can't wait November 19th, a movie to come out, King Richard. I was called by the people making the movie and how the, I was asked for a copy and there's a scene in the movie that's from a videotape that Richard Williams sent to Vic Braden. Hmm. The girls are 15 months apart and Venus basically stopped playing when she was 10 playing tournaments and she was dominating Southern California based out of Compton. Hmm. Um, but Vic used to travel with his heavy shoulder bag and he had all these DVDs and he gave me several copies of this, that, and the other thing. And he gave me a copy of that. And then um, it's on YouTube. You just put, I think you just put Great Bass Tennis, Venus, Serena. Um, it was a tape. It really, so I was asked about the rights and I said, it's Richard's film. Mm-hmm. Richard's the one who filmed it and sent it to Vic. Um, but it's just for the listeners, uh, they see the movie, it's where they're, very young, and I don't know if they're. You, I haven't seen the movie, obviously, but um, one of the girls is. I think it's Venus is wearing a long fur coat, and they're really young, and um, you know they're posing for a photo shoot for Vic Bray, and they hit balls and they say hello to him. And um, no, that story is amazing. With I, I met Richard, and it was in the early '90s. Rick Macy wanted to merge with the Saguzo Bassett Tennis Academy. I was interviewed. So Roger, Robbie's brother calls me up and I fly in and within a week, I mean, uh, Dave Anderson came to join me. So I came back to Boca because I had been Boca off and on, you know, winters mostly, uh, not summers between 74 and 79. And with um, Rick Macy wanted to merge. So he had rented too many courts and, you know, right, right here, a couple, it seems like a couple golf shots away from your performance center. Um, now it's the Delray Beach Tennis Center, right? The swim club. Swim club. So um, I remember Dave Anderson said, you just need to go up there. So I would, I went, I went day after day to just watch. And it was um, Rick Macy, um, Richard was wearing blue jeans and street shoes and he's feeding balls and I remember shaking hands with Venus. It was like meeting someone in the NBA. You know, she was so tall. And, mm. and uh, Rick said, well, I'd introduce you to Serena, but she might bite your finger off. And they hit balls all day, every day. But he was very curious. We never worked with them. Um, but initially they were watching Braden tapes. And it, that's, that's what um, his mission was to try to get Vic more involved. That, that never happened. But um, with Richard, I remember uh, two different times where um, I was in a room making videos and Richard was watching me and I kind of and went, whoa. But he was a very, very curious guy. And, mm. and I, I just think that th- 
the thought of those girls not playing junior tennis, that's covered in the movie. Mm. I mean, we tell kids every day is a tournament. And you've got to play, you know, with the idea of what are your long-term goals. And one thing for me as well, I think everybody, I mean, they were not, they were playing home run derby. When they, they were making so many mistakes when they played tennis. They were teeing off on every ball. So they were the ones who really, on women's tennis, said, okay, this is how you return serve. And um, so, no, I think they definitely lifted the level of tennis by being so aggressive. All right. Um, you know, they certainly were influenced by others. I mean, you know, Billie Jean King, she's on one of those Sports Illustrated covers. Talk, talk about Billie Jean King stories, but um, I remember her just saying, you know, they're playing one up, one back, and, you know, what are you girls doing? And, you know, I think everybody in tennis clock stops when Billy's talk, when Billy talks and we're listening. I'll be curious to hear how they, uh, how they train the girls, the two young girls who play Venus and Serena, how they train them or if they were already tennis players or if they did train them how to play. I read, read, read a few things already where I know Will Smith made $40 million <laughs> with, uh, bad. but he gave, he gave a lot of gifts to the people that were part of the, part of the movie. They didn't say how much, but um, just super generous. I think it's going to be very, very good. I think with, uh, you know, it's dramatic. I, I know that. We're uh, just, just have read that. So, um, you know, people telling you, no, you, 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 this is unconventional. You can't do it this way. You can't do it that way. And, but I think one thing, too, that they work so hard. Yeah. They hit so many balls. And, um, you know, like you said about Naratilova, you know, she came before them. And, you know, there's things that Martina did better, you know, it's like from the service line in. Right, I mean, right. Cleaner volleys. Um, you know, like Venus and Serena, um, everybody has inefficiencies. No one is, like, just perfect when it comes down to right. being biomechanically sound. The... Um, well, there's probably a chance that, and you would you would know this. This is not. I, I don't have the tennis history nailed down like you do, but there's probably a chance that they had crossed paths in a doubles draw somewhere, based on when Martina stopped playing doubles and when the Williams sisters started playing. You know, I wouldn't know that, but yeah. uh, that's the late Bud Collins would know. That. He would know that. <laughs> the I think that uh, Martina uh, may have because. Um, I mean, she won when she was 50. Yeah, amazing. Absolutely you know, and, amazing. And I always say that, you know, that's a compliment to Martina, but that's not a compliment to women's tennis. Right. Um, you know, when she uh, has gone on record without, maybe she's not even conscious of saying it, but mixed doubles is still real doubles. Um, the, the way she could serve and volley and go forward. Chris Everett, you know, has made a comment. Well, when I got on the tour, no one could hit ground strokes. But the the grass, I mean, you go back and look at film, the players stood by the umpire. There weren't even chairs. And then when it rained at Wimbledon, they had no, you know, crew, an army of people pulling the tarp over the court. And, you know, by the second week, players were wearing spikes. And it was like, whatever you do, don't let the ball bounce. Yeah. Yeah. But with Billy, um, so many stories of Billie Jean King, but Mervyn Rose, a great um, a great Australian tennis player. He was really known for his coaching as well. 
she went all the way to Australia. There was no tournament. She went down there to work on her game. She went down there to work on her forehand. And she came back and she said, my forehand is awesome. My forehand is my best side. I love my forehand. I love my forehand. She kept telling people, I love my forehand. I improved my forehand so much. And then afterwards she said, it was all a bluff. She goes, I was still always struggling with my forehand. Interesting. The, uh, but yeah, Billie Jean King. Yeah, I think that's where, that's missing with tennis. I do think what, what Roger Federer has done with the Labor Cup and he told Tony Godzik, um, I've, I make more in one exhibition than Rod Laver made in his whole career. And that's part of the reason that whole thing came about. But to really study the game, um, it's just amazing to me where kids are lacking skills. You know, they, they're not complete players. You know, certainly the big money coming into it, um, I think it would be would have been great years ago. Billie Jean King, she pushed for boys and girls to be in the same age group when they were 12. Just more tennis being played. A lot of times you go to a 12-hour tournament, the best player there is a girl, not the boy. Right. And maybe even into the 14s. Billie was, you know, always fighting for equal prize money for women, but she was fight, fighting for equal prize money for doubles. And the, the division, it's, uh, I believe it's 20% goes to doubles, then you got to split it. All right. And wouldn't it be great if the best players in the world, um, you know, even like a, a Fetter, he back and just played doubles. But if it was a bonus pool where the bonus money went to the people who had the best combination, it would really help junior tennis. Here in Florida one time, late Bobby Curtis, great guy, and I remember him just saying, well, as an organization, we don't have enough guts. Because... At one point, fifteen percent of your singles ranking was based on your doubles. And at one point in, in Florida, one weekend a month was just doubles only. But people weren't playing. Mm. People weren't playing. So mm. there's been a lot of uh, smart people that have fought for the right causes in tennis, but didn't work. So one thing we do, we we do coach a lot of players who only play doubles. You know, of course, the you know the recreational player who. You know, for different reasons, they're in a doubles league and uh, they don't really have any interest in playing singles. And I'm always telling them, try to watch doubles on TV, but it's so hard to come across it during a Grand Slam. I think it's easier now. The Tennis Channel does such a great job of getting so many different courts on TV. If you get Tennis Channel Plus and you can kind of surf around and choose the court, but just to watch how the players move. Uh, you know, the, 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 the net player in a situation, you know, the, the server's partner, the returner's partner, how they move, how they're so active. It's such a key to great doubles, but they just don't show it enough because the marquee players aren't playing. Yeah, there's so many points to make on both sides of that comment with it, uh, Indian Wells, which is not a full two weeks, but it, the players come from the indoor season and they show up at Indian Wells and it's like, okay, I'd like to hang out in the desert a little bit longer. And the singles players say, I'll throw my hat in and I'll play doubles. So they bump, you know, say somebody's ranked, right. whatever the number may be, someone's ranked 40 and they're, uh, normally they would get into the doubles, but someone who's ranked 39 gets in ahead of them. Um, I always think of Raven in those situations. And I think one, one thing that Raven pointed out years ago, uh, you know, Raven's obviously world-class doubles player has, has, has had so many great results. And, and uh, one thing you mentioned is that, you know, the behavior of the top, top players 
Yeah, you're saying about Raven? Yeah, so just, you know, many conversations with Raven, someone who, you know, I had the the privilege really of, you know, spending a, a great deal of time around uh, in Tampa, Florida, uh, a world-class doubles player has had incredible results in the doubles tour. Um, and also, you know, obviously did pretty well in, the, in singles before he committed to doubles. He would always say, if you really watch the professional players and how they handle themselves, one of the reasons they handle themselves with so much class has to be because they know that so many people are watching and their behavior, you know, really does influence the behavior of so many others. And I've always thought of that as far as Roger, I think Roger's such an incredible sportsman and classy guy that if there were anyone who were to stick around and play doubles, if he weren't able to compete in singles, it would probably be him. I think he's pretty aware of the impact he has on how he fills seats and how healthy it is for him to still be playing the game. I think that's got to be one of his main motivations. Obviously, his kids watching him play, but I think to to get people to turn on the TV and to get people to come and watch, I could totally see him doing that. Well, um, Roger Federer is going to be an Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer, the great golfer, I mean, he was, you know, lived into his 80s, I believe, and he was still, uh, you know, people were looking for his name and right. um, to, to tie onto a product, have him endorse it. With doubles, um, I think it's so sad. At one point, the tournament directors wanted doubles to be dropped because they have to sell tickets. Right. And I do think that's where doubles has been put more on more show, show courts because of the no ad than the 10-point tiebreaker. Right. Um, yeah, you know, as son Connor said to me one time, he goes, it's, it's not a match. You know, and the players, it is a match who, who, who moves on and, who earns more money, who accumulates more points, but it's, it's unfortunate. Um, the, uh, and that's where you talk all day long about the short sets and is to have it come down to a tiebreaker, even though it's a 10 point tiebreaker. Um, but you know, that's, that's interesting too. All four grand slams have a different ending, right. you know, without, you know, how is it? Um, and I mean, if I were to be quizzed, I wouldn't know. I know that the U S is five. It's at six all. It's a, a regular tiebreaker. It's a good trivia question. Yeah, the uh, the ten point tiebreaker is definitely not uh, not a true test of, like Connor said, not a true test of, of who's the who's the better tennis player on that day or the better tennis team on that day. And there's no secret, you know, I, I play I did play tennis at Furman University, but it uh, it really I, I was not an everyday lineup player. I got a lot out of practicing with the team and was able to play in some matches in the fall and a couple matches here and there in the spring. I always had a much better chance to play in the doubles lineup. In my junior year, Coach Paul Scarpa, he gathers the team together and he says, all right, Blandon. <laughs> all right, Blandon, this is your chance. And he puts me with a freshman player, who lefty, who's a good player from Texas, actually, uh, probably knows a lot of the same people in the Dave Anderson, Brookhaven world, and Robert Bruner. And he, as he's, as he says what we're going to do, he says, you're going to play best two out of three super tiebreakers, you know, against senior captains, of course. And, and as I'm starting to serve to warm up, he's walking away and he turns around and he says, Brandon, if you lose this, you can forget it. <laughs> we lost 10-8, 10-8, and I did not play in the doubles lineup that year. So there's, that's all you need to know about my tennis career. Pressure. Pressure. With... The tiebreaker, I tell people, as far as tactics is concerned, 
what you could possibly do, it's got to be decision by decision. You got to feel good about it. You got to go for it is become more aggressive in the beginning of the 10 point tiebreaker. Because mm. if people, people pay attention almost every time, not every time, but very close, the person who gets off to a really good start in the tiebreaker. Yeah. And no, that's you know, true. So that's where, if you can throw a curveball and play, play, throw different tactics in the very, very beginning of a 10 point tiebreaker. If we're on the topic of Paul Scarpa and doubles, the one one more thing to bring up is the the switch formation, which is actually on the Craig Tiley Illinois video, which is where yeah. he got that from. In some ways, it board was borderline illegal, right? Because it's somewhat distracting. But uh, the switch formation was something he had all of us work on in in doubles, and we did have really strong doubles at Furman. We won the doubles point, you know, the large majority of the time. But that switch formation was quite quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, with you're the player is about to serve. And if you're going to do this at a junior tournament, you better have a rule book with you. It's not a distraction if you're communicating with your partner. So mm. you toss the ball up in the air and you say switch. So if you're serving deuce court, your partner's, you're lined up conventional, traditional. So your partner is in the deuce court house and they can, they can cross over. They can cross over, return. They can just like a football team is running an audible so if, if someone says switch, you, you're, the returning team should both go back to offset. But um, I picked that up from Tylee, you know, the, the switch format. I remember when Paul Scarpa, he saw your video, he came right away to see you and spent a couple of days with us. He said he used it all the time. Yeah. But Tylee's quite the salesman. He told people that, you know, he got that from the Woodies. And then one of my... Uh, Contacts, actually Brian Clark, a tennis club up in, uh, friend up in Cincinnati. He researched it to the point where someone asked the Woodies and they said they had never heard of it. The, um, but you still, you don't see it that much. But now I think we see so much of, and this is something that I saw the other day and I said, oh no, really? Uh, it's kind of like the WTA versus the ATP forehand. I mean, come on, a forehand's a forehand. You know, I, I just think that's such a shot against women. I mean, well, it's a WTA forehand if the swing is big. You know, come on, guys, gals. Mm. But with um, classic doubles versus modern doubles, and I don't really think people playing one up, one back, running around backhands, bashing balls, is called modern doubles. But that's, uh, I saw that as a, you know, somebody who's a you know, pretty well-known internet guru has that out. And, okay, let's go through. And, um, you know, certainly, you know, I didn't watch the entire tape, but there's a lot of quality, quality points made, but to just call it classic doubles versus <laughs> Let's call it what modern, it is. Modern. It's, Singles on half a court with a sitting duck at the net. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. And, you know, it's, um, you mentioned Raven Claussen with, uh, I remember at one point, I think Raven – has done so well. I think he has 18 titles that he definitely has earned the ATP pension. Yeah. But you just think of, you know, that's U.S. dollars and you think about the South African ran, that's A-OK for him. But he's, you know, talking about playing Jack Sock. And, yeah. you know, Sock, he's, he's such an unorthodox player, but the RPM he's getting on a forehand. But when people are trying to volley with their elbow in and a strong continental grip. It's not easy. I remember, uh, I remember you being with me one time. We went out to dinner, and I said, "Hey, Raven, forget those pension numbers. Think of these numbers again. 
you know, you, you know, you, you got to get the elbow raised and you got to get the racket face flatter and you got to really counter speed with speed. If that ball is coming in at that angle where it's dipping so severely, right, and then your your racket's going downward, I mean, good luck. It's just too much calculation. Yeah. One more photo down the hallway of Sports Illustrated covers is Jimmy Connors at the 1991 U.S. Open with a neon yellow racket, neon green racket, pumping his fist. And it says underneath the people's choice. And that's got to be one of the most, you know, replayed tennis matches, the Crickstein-Connors final. And uh, I think everyone probably feels a little bit bad for Aaron Crickstein. He's a local guy. And he's been interviewed about it before. I think he's he's probably okay with it now. But for many years, if if you had more than two or three days of rain at the U.S. Open, that's the match they were going to play. And uh, and so underneath, I thought it was interesting because he became such a star at that tournament in terms of the the, the fans. Everyone was cheering for him, but that really wasn't the case for most of his career, was it? He was kind of he wasn't necessarily as popular as Borg. No, or, in New York, he turned it around where. Um he won, and he said to the audience, "You might hate me, but I love you." And from that point forth, from that point forth, he was just loved by by New York, the New, York, is, the New Yorkers. I love the line: "This is what you want. This is what you get." You know, the, the the Open. I mean, for some people, the Open is three weeks because of qualifying, but it's a fortnight, two weeks. So, um, I was at the University of Illinois. And before uh, Craig Tiley went there and, you know, took the program from obscurity where they won the national championship, Jennifer Roberts preceded him. So I used to go up every Labor Day. Of course, Roberts, you know, she's you know, 32 when she looks 16. And I went in to, you know, set the tone. And I remember we used to do a Peter Burwash drill on the grass. And it's, my goal was every girl's warm up is going to be wet, grass stained, where, you know, you hit a volley and you got to, one person in this circle, you know, let's not even mm-hmm. start on the tennis court. Let's mm-hmm. just shock them. Mm-hmm. So I'm a, I don't really think I'm a fan of tennis, but I, a student of tennis, but I was a fan of Connors for sure. Love to watch Connors play. And so I'm in Illinois and this is long before cell phones and the telephone comes on TV. So they stopped showing the match. And I remember I got on the phone with a gal who was helping me out, Helen Harrison, said Harrison, don't hang up. And she just was. She was just giving. Me, she was just giving me the play by play. Of course, that was the first week. By the second week of the open, because I would go up there when school would be starting the first week. And but no, it's electrifying. I mean, what what happened with the audience? Oh yeah, the Harhus Connors point that they play over and over again. The overheads and the lobs. Overheads and the lobs. Yeah. With, um, I think another interesting exercise about that that year, and if you just just play that game, uh, you've done this before, but obviously players in that tournament, Andre Agassi, I think you know his first his first year in the U.S. Open might have been eighty six, eighty seven, but you know he certainly was in that tournament. And then if you take the years that Connors started playing professional tennis to when he stopped playing and was still playing to a high level, you know if you take that as a milestone, the ninety one U.S. Open, and then you take Agassi's career to where he retired after the 2006 match. And if you take those two players and the, just the amount of time those two players are competitive. Yeah. That's incredible. The beginning side of that, you can take Rosewall. Rosewall got to the Wimbledon final in 74. And 
Um, excuse me, he got the Wimbledon final in 54, mm. the year I was born, 1954. Then 74, he plays Connors. I mean, he didn't do so well. Connors had beat him at Wimbledon a couple, a couple months prior. Right. But 20-year run, two finals. Jimmy took it all the way to 91, where he got out to the semis. And right. Came up a little bit short against Courier. But that's 40 years. But then, yeah, if you had Agassi. But one thing is that those three players stayed so close to the baseline. Right. And you just think, okay, close to the baseline, short, compact swings, um, you know, just, you know, like Agassi, uh, the players definitely listened to one another. And Connors was asked what his legacy was, and he said, letting people in tennis know that you can take the ball on the rise. And when, you know, many years later, when Agassi retired, he goes, well, I took it one step further than Jimmy. I proved that you could take the ball on the rise and hit top. Uh, Jimmy hit top, you know, um, it certainly was more of a flat hit, the revolutions right. per second compared to to an Agassi. Right, right. Um, talking about Agassi with ball striking, Steve Young was with us for five years. Started off with a two-year program, and he stayed three more years because he got his four-year degree. Um, maybe even done some grad work because it was, it was Tyler Junior College and University of Texas at Tyler. So um, Steve was down at Volatari's. In fact, Aaron Creekstein, who's a real quiet guy, but Gross Point, Michigan, and I understand, you know, because I spent time in Gross Point, Michigan, if you, if you want to talk to him about the Detroit Tigers, he, he, he's going to light up a little bit. But it was, uh, Creekstein was part of the group and Agassi, so they're at a baseball practice at, uh, park um, where the guys are using a machine batting machine. All right. So Agassi says, hey, can I try that? And, you know, now his son, a uh, very good baseball player. And he was definitely radical. He's definitely a guy who's going to go for it. He wasn't pushing anything. Is He said, turn it up as fast as you can. So he takes a baseball bat with a tennis swing, and the, thing, the machine's going as fast as it can. He runs forward, hitting them out of the air. And these baseball players just stop and look at the guy. But, it, you know, it's just interesting, you know, the train he got. Um, and again, coming back to what I said about his sister, they didn't have the court in the backyard. They didn't have the ball machine. And uh, Tammy didn't have. So that that really, it wasn't like Mike Agassi said, okay, racket up high, high, low, high, inside out. Went through all the rationale. But it was the story of circumstance where right. he ended up hitting the ball like that. Similar to Roddick's serve, I'd imagine. Yeah, Um Stan Boss did this. South African was working with him. It was a very humble story because he said, hey, I was working with him and uh, I didn't teach him to serve. He discovered on his own. We have the film where his mother, I believe his mother, Blanche, passed away not too long ago. So I think the same year his father did, but, but he had a regress palm up. And the word she uses is serve was pitiful. Hmm. Everything, else, everything else looked you know, pretty good as far as you know, trying to you know, turn, use his legs. One thing with Roddick, I mean, all these players, I could talk about Roddick. We'd have a podcast just on Jimmy, any of these guys. Andy Roddick stories, but Roddick, he used to say that I, um, I don't know how I hit it. I just hit it. But he does now say, you know, I wish he'd go back to the old, it's all in the legs. Uh, you know, it is true that the power source comes through the ground. Right. But, you know, my, um, and I, I know you've got some photos that are not, are not up yet, but maybe they, ha- they haven't made the mark, but it's the one that's on the floor in your office is of Roddick. And, this was Craig Tiley. 
So back in the day, there was in Texas, the, the, Wichita Falls, they didn't have 10s. They had 12s, 14s, 16s, and 18s. So there's eight tournaments to win. And we thought we could have students win four. And um, so Tyler comes back and goes, John Roddick, because he beat one of our players. And he goes, um, I, John Roddick. I said, how good is this kid, Roddick? And he goes, he's good, but his brother's going to be awesome. Mm. I said, why do you say that? He goes, well, he's seven years old, and all he did, it's so hot in the summertime, is he just hit the backboard the entire time, didn't stop. But the backboard was right by where people would come to hand their scores in. In a tournament like that, you it's not just the winners go to take the balls in because there's a back draw and feed in. you got to find out when you play next. And So both players are walking up. So he, he just would hit the backboard, stop, and go, who won? He asked two questions. Who won? <laughs> What's the score? And he just turned around and started hitting. So here's a seven-year-old, you know, some 15-year-olds are walking by going, oh, hey, yeah. what was the score? But he, hit, he hit the ball. You know, that's, that's the it thing. Right. You know, Roddick was asked. I can remember rereading Gilbert's book, Winning Ugly, because he had won 23 matches in a row. And it's, it's a great read. It's a simple read. But, Aggie, uh, excuse me, Roddick was once asked, how do you play so well? And he said, I just pretend my mother's life is on the line. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he's such time. a funny guy. The, I, you know, I had the opportunity at the Delaware Beach Tennis Center every year to, uh, to work the, the special pro clinic where the players who were on the Champions Tour event, which is cool about that event, they combine a Champions Tour event with an ATP event. And so just the list kind of, Yvonne Lendl, you know, uh, I think Pat Cash, uh, just several, you know, famous players. And, and one year I got partnered up with Andy Roddick. And so I'm basically the ball feeder and I'm there if they need any assistance, you know? And, and so it's an hour clinic with, they have just people rotating, you know, groups of six rotating through. And, uh, I'm kind of suggesting some things as needed. And we get to about, you know, 15 minutes in and Andy turns to me and says, God, what should we do? I've got no idea what to do with these people. <laughs> and so I just said, well, Andy, I think it'd be great if you she just hit a couple serves to them. And he's like, I can't say this word on this podcast, but oh man, I'm not going to do that. Oh, my shoulder from last night. You know, he, had, he hadn't played many matches and he was serving, you know, in the stadium court. He went and did it. And it was incredible because every single serve, I mean, probably 50% or 75% pace, every single serve was right on the service line. But uh, the whole situation was quite funny. But just his his sense of humor with the students who were there, and then with me as a, just kind of an assistant coach, was was really really funny. You can get a pretty good sense of what kind of guy he was, and probably one of the best interviews, post match interviews you you'd ever see in tennis. Yeah, funny guy with the old, oldest brother is Lawrence. His uh, his son is a pretty good tennis player. When he was really young, he used the Great Base curriculum. So, um. It wasn't a handful of times. It was uh, three, four times where I was out at Roddick's training coaches. Now, John wasn't there. He was with Andy, so I show up. And, but then I was at the US Open. I ended up sitting at the same table, rain delay, and I just went up and thanked him for the opportunity to you know, work his academy. And I said, I coached against you when you were a kid. And you know, he knew the names Clayton Stanley and Chad Clark, and he just looked at me. He goes, victory or death. <laughs> because, you know, that's one thing with Andy. He learned so much about competition from his older brother. Famous story with Macy. You know, I, I think Rick's great. I mean, if, if Andy and, you know, others, uh, 
Kennan and um, Capriati. Sher, you know, Sharapova. Capriati, you know, she started with uh, um, Jimmy Everett, but they, they definitely spent time with, with Rick. And Rick, you know, he's a Pied Piper. He's a great motivator. But he tells a story about, you know, so the listeners think, well, you know, he just brought him up from A to Z. He really didn't spend that much time with the Williamses, but enough. A healthy amount of time. He tells a story that they're playing flag football and Roddick's the youngest, Andy, and he just goes down and some big guy's got the ball. He's, because he's born in Nebraska, spent time in Texas. He just goes down and tries to tackle the guy. But you know, one thing yeah, you mentioned, um, I've done quite a bit of this. It's not so prevalent today because there's just not as much money as there is in tennis, the corporate outings. I've traveled before where you know, I'm just going to a clinic to help the superstars, to help the players. All right. One time, Tim Mayo was just off the tour, and I was doing this work for, for Tennis Corporation of America. So Tim shows up, and same thing. He goes, he just does not know what to do. And uh, I mean, because, you know, there's going to be like 240 people. And I'm going, okay, we have 16 indoor courts. I mean, it was converted later to uh, less courts. But I've got an air horn. As everybody comes in, they get a name tag, and then they get on their name tag just – you know, Brandon, large letters, and there's a number. So if it's one through 16, so Brandon's going, you go to court seven, you start at court seven. So you get everybody in the bleachers, you just look at your name tag and you go to that court. And seven goes to eight and eight goes to nine. And um, I said, no, this is the best way to do it. He goes, okay, okay. So we have all these five minute rotations. So they get, they get, and he was knocking on the door to be a Wimbledon champion. Um, so uh, obviously a big time player. So they get on his court and they just volley a few. And I have somebody, this is long before cell phones, I have somebody with a camera like boom, 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 next. So everybody hit a few balls with them, mm-hmm. got their photo taken with them. Yep. The, uh, with, uh, one of my favorite corporate outing stories was I went to, one of my students was hosting it. It's a fundraiser, great charity. But, um, can't remember exactly what the charity was, but Ponca City, Oklahoma. So... Fly into Tulsa, and you know, name Steve Smith. So Stan Smith. Now there's the book. Uh, you know, I'm not a shoe. I think that's the title. Because Stan Smith. To, to digress, that he had the Adidas shoe in the 70s, 80s. Right. Wimbledon champion in 72. So maybe it was even before the 80s. Laver had one as well, but it came back as a walking shoe. So Adidas brings it back. Stan Smith made more the first year that walking shoe came out than he did in his entire career. Wow. So people, Stan Smith, the player, he's the shoe. <laughs> so it's funny, you know, you get to an airport. And so Tim Gullickson was part of it. And I, you know, Tim was coming from another plane. And so so I, I know, know Tim, so we see each other. And we walk up and we just hear Stan Smith. And a person comes up to him and says, because he's, he's got a sign up, says S. Smith. So Stan, you know, limousine driver. So he S. Smith. So Stan walks up and says, you're looking for Stan Smith? He said, no, Steve Smith. He goes, is this for the Ponca City Tennis uh, Fundraiser? He goes, yeah. He goes, oh, you must meet Stan Smith. He goes, no, I, I'm here to get Steve Smith. <laughs> and he knew me because of training the kids and all right, at right. the club. The pro is uh, Guy Weinold, who's um, now he's not in tennis, but based in Austin, does really want business. His wife, Lisa, she's in I guess, a manager of the Austin Tennis Academy. So um, she has some off-court position with them. So Stan, 
You know, the guy, I show up and the guy's there to pick us up. So Tim and I get on this small plane, private plane. We fly from Tulsa to Ponca City and Stan rides in a station wagon. <laughs> he's, he's a Wimbledon champion. But actually, what happened was these people did it up to the point where Stan was at the pizza party and playing playing team tennis. And usually that's not the case. But um, so we walk around a corner and if there was one, there was like 300 kids at this school. And so Stan, you know, he gets in front and you know, you can only tell, you know, stories to young kids about being a, a Wimbledon champion for so long. So I went up and kind of whispered to him and said, Stan, you want me to get him off the bleachers again? And it's like, okay, run around the courts and you give each kid a number and you start just, okay, we're going to spread out, get a partner, throw and catch and bring everybody back in. But, um, yeah, that's a that's a kicker with. Uh, I think another Stan great Smith. one is being on court with Yvonne Lendl as a player. He was, I mean, he's so serious. And in this clinic, there was not one player in that clinic he wasn't willing to just bust their chops. I mean, eighty-five-year-old ladies. I mean, he was just giving them the hardest time, just just ripping them. And one of these ladies in the clinic, and this is a different year. One of the ladies in the clinic comes up to him and says, "So." what do you think about the forehand grip? What, what forehand grip are the players playing with today? It's the same as when you played. Speaking of forehand grips, I mean, his grip is almost on a forehand grip for his one-handed backhand. I don't, I don't know how yeah, he yeah. hits top. Well, he puts the wrist down. It's like McEnroe, they have very, very much the same grip, but McEnroe had the open racket face and rolled it. Yeah. Where Lendl collapsed. collapsed the wrist so the racket was closed. So she asked him about the grip, and, and I'm standing there kind of with my, my, my racket uh, behind my back, and he kind of says... He goes, this guy's the tennis coach. Ask this guy. And of course, I start going into the, the great base explanation of the forehand grips. And he very, very quickly told me to shut up and we moved on <laughs> to the next thing. <laughs> but just the, you know, the way he handled himself was, was really, really funny. But uh, Actually, the way he talked to Judy Murray, because Judy Murray was always there mm-hmm. when he was coaching Andy. Yeah, Car- and, like, like, are you here again? <laughs> and Carla's, yeah. And he, we, they were practicing at the Delray Tennis Center. So Andy lives in Miami. And Yvonne lives in Vero Beach, and said so they'd meet halfway, and they were practicing at the stadium court when I was uh, when I was working there. And and Carla tells the story. She it was Carla's. She probably loves tennis even more than I do. And she was just watching these practices, you know, day in day out. And he basically she basically said that each practice was basically just Lendl holding up, and for so those of you listening on Spotify, just holding up his finger to his lips and telling him to shh. Yeah, I heard Carla's yeah. story. Carla, right, really Carla good story. Navarro. Um, you know, the thing with grips, uh, oh, there's a film with Rosewall, there's a film with Sampras, there's a film with so many players, and they're asked about what grip they use, and they kind of go, oh, I use this one. It's like with Gilbert, you know, and he's asked about grips, he goes, oh, I don't do grips. You know, they're coaching people. And, you know, say, for example, uh, Wayne Ferrer's doing an outstanding job with TFO, but don't think he's changing the grip on that backhand volley. Right. I'll tell you one thing about Stan Smith is... Uh, getting people to project their voice. So I'm there helping with all the clinics and helping just, you know, I, I, not, I, um, I flew in, but, a, a, you know, like six guys from our program drive up from Tyler, Texas to Ponca city, Oklahoma. And it was on for several years. So, um, it's in an auditorium, there's literally thousands of people and there's no person for the chair. So Stan Smith, uh, I remember I was, Steve, you will do it. I go, yeah, okay. So Stan coached me. He said, have you done this before? 
said, yeah, I've been in the chair before, but I've been in the chair with, uh, you know, this many people. He goes, you will make it or break it with, uh, with a match. If there's no umpire, there's, there's, there's no match really. So I looked at him and said, you want uh, Frank Hammond or Mike Blanchard? <laughs> and I was like, you know, advantage Borg. And I mean, I could do either one. And I, one time was at, they don't have these tournaments anymore, these events. It was a Sunshine Cup for boys. It was a Continental Cup for girls. Basically, 18, 18 and under. Now they're calling it the Billie Jean King Cup, Fed Cup, mm. and Davis Cup. And I told the juniors, I would say, oh, we'll stay and watch this. It was Steffi Graf and Mary Pierce. It was going to be an exhibition. It was right here, your backyard. You've taught there. The, yeah. you, you know right where it is. So yeah. Delray Beach Tennis Center. And, and um, so Jim Pierce... Uh, you know, obviously there's a positive and negative, but Jim Pierce is a pretty intense tennis parent. Um, he stands up and says, don't keep score. So Steffi kind of looks and he goes, just play points, don't keep score. And Steffi says, yeah, okay. And so these two world-class players, Graf and Pierce, are playing points. Everyone left. You know, they, they, they could have played a, a bunch of tiebreakers, but there was, no, there was nobody announcing the score. And mm-hmm. This kind of went away. Um, what else you got on your interior design here? I think this, people we, people need to come and visit. This place has uh, got a great vibe for it. I think just sitting in this classroom, we're making a podcast. Um, my favorite memorabilia is we have a director's chair, and on the back of the director's chair, um, it's from the Vic Braden Tennis College. And uh, actually, we're going to post it on Facebook. It'll be on Instagram. And we have a rule for the director's chair that no one sits in it. Vic Braden, the master. Uh, thank you, Vic. But it, you want to have any closing comments? We, it's, it, again, I think it's fun just to talk about the history of tennis, go on about players, the insight. Um, I know kids, I tell kids all the time, you, you've got to do your homework. But I'm telling you, you know, we have some podcasts, like they should definitely listen to one on tennis math or Bill Jacobson on stats. Um, because you know, I think when people start to study what we've put together, Oh, you mean the people make you hit off a cone? You know, that's the first glimpse. That, right. Or someone who comes the first time. And it's, it's like, well, there's a lot more to it than that. Right, right. No, I think tennis history is extremely important. I was talking to a student uh, yesterday or today, and 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 uh, a lot of students that I work with, either they're, they're members of, of other private clubs, or maybe they're members of the private clubs that we manage, but... In many cases, they are doing other tennis yeah. events at other clubs. And he said, well, you know, I've asked my pro if he if he knows anything about tennis history. And he just kind of says, yeah, no, I don't. And uh, I think it's really common in tennis, and it's probably less common in other sports. But I think that was an important part of what we were trying to do here is, is when you walk in to have not just photos of Roger and Rafa and, and Venus and Serena, the players that kind of everyone knows from today, but to have some things that are from the past to kind of, you know, give everyone a little bit of history when they walk through. And uh, it just, you know, I think it's, there's a couple other things on the walls, obviously. And, and, uh, and, but I think it's, that's really just the, a way to make people who are fans of the sport and love the sport kind of enjoy being in this space with us. So with, um, tennis history, I think one thing that's also important for the junior tennis players, I know some parents will be driving around listening to these podcasts, people need to know their own history. You know, I've always said to so many kids, don't be discouraged, but you've, you've had, you have a late start and a bad start. 
and you know with traces of the old with you know for example if someone someone's changing a grip uh it's not like just snap your fingers you just have to know well um you didn't go to the net till you're 15 years old and started playing when you were five 10 years is a long time and you know they go to the net like you know they're doing a backflip on a balance beam, it's not that dangerous. I mean, you might get hit by a tennis ball, but it's not a lacrosse ball. It's not a hockey puck. And, but I think you have to know your own history. And um, I'm telling kids, you know, I know a lot of 40-year-olds that are still teenagers. You know, if you're, you're, you're lazy when you're 12, you're probably going to be lazy when you're 22. Right. So I, mean, I think that's another point to pound. And so for me, um, it's like this girl from England, uh, Emma Radakuna, who's in, in everybody's thought process because it was just recent where she won the grand slam and first person to come through the qualities to do that. But, you know, okay. She, you know, her, her, the, her private school and the private tennis club, they're in, they're right next to one another basically. And there was times where she practiced three times a day. She was well-taught. She was extremely well-taught and, you know, that whole thing, no substitute for a good beginning. And if someone doesn't have a good beginning, they can be a great player. Um, but, really need to have a healthy work ethic. So with, when you, you get, when you're around really good tennis players, they don't talk about, you know, their wins. They don't talk about, you know, winning Wimbledon, the triumph, triumphs, uh, the setbacks. They talk about how hard they worked. They just talk about the, the lifestyle. They certainly will talk about what their, what their family did for them to get them down the road. I think even with tennis parents, I tell tennis parents, you should not only tell your child your history, but tell them your your parents, the grandparents' history, and um, you know just just have an appreciation. Um, you know your how's it go? You you have to understand the past to deal with the present, work towards the future. So I, I really I'm big on character, and I'm certainly more interested in someone's tennis background as far as. You know, like say Richard Williams. I mean, this, I mean, he couldn't even really feed balls. Right. And it's like we we're going to hit more balls than everybody else. It's not rocket science. <laughs> and um, with, you know, he wasn't a tennis person, but he looked at it and said, "Some people say, well, you slide like a fox.' That we could end on with a movie coming out, the Williams sisters. That, um, you know, he, there was some money put on the table with Reebok and." You know, he, there were some sponsorship dollars, obviously, that funded them at, for several years before they started making money. And, um, you know, maybe that sponsorship would have gone away if they went out there and they were just teeing off on everything. And But they weren't playing, you know, bite your fingernails, climb the fence, little kid push ball. Right. They were trying to bang the ball like a pro. Right. And, you know, he had foresight. And... Um, you know, some ways broke the mold. And um, I do think that a lot of people um, are very motivated by his story. And, um, but I do think that, um, you know, it's like as great as they are, like, you know, Venus, excuse me, I'll go with Serena first. Uh, she opens up on her overhead. If you watch her, she'll open up on her overhead. For the longest time, I used to say the only person that could beat Serena is Serena. Mm-hmm. And, um, doesn't really have a, a, a clean loop on the backhand side. Venus will drop the racket, hit the wrist on the backhand side. 
I mean, Venus at her prime, I mean, she was just made for grass court tennis. Right. With, um, but the brain, quantity wins. But really what you want is you want quantity and quality. So, you, you know, the reps. So but I tell people, well, you can stay with this forehand. You can stay with this backhand. You're, the, you're either a one or two. You're all in. You know, if you can make this change, it's it's not you can't be like a two. You got to be just, to- totally committed to it. Just do it, yeah. And but I, I like the character stories. We did that another time. Uh, just just to zone in on one player. Um, you know, like so many names brought up today: Jimmy Connors, Gloria. Jimmy, I'm your mother. If I can hit the ball down your throat, I will. <laughs> you know, he wins Wimbledon, and he says, "This is what I always want to do." And and I've only seen that this was was called the. Uh, at one point, it was called the Nick Baltieri rule because Nick, when one of his players would win, he'd jump right on the court and he'd have his arm right around the kid when they were getting the trophy. Richard one time came on the court, but the parents, the coaches, no one's really loud on the court except for the player. But Jimmy, when he won Wimbledon, said, this is what I always wanted to do. And Gloria's right there said, no, you always wanted to beat your older brother. <laughs> and it's really interesting, you know, siblings, so many times it's the older child that... You know, like Agassi, we've talked about him a little bit, where he had three siblings that beat down the path. But no, the, if you get a chance to come to Boynton Beach, uh, FM, Tennis Performance Center, it's got a great vibe, and anybody loves tennis would just love to walk through and look at the walls. You've done a great job with that. Thank you. Thank you. And the first ever Great Base Tennis Podcast about interior design. Interior design. <laughs> the, uh, it is true that characters on the inside, reputation is on the outside. But Brandon, thanks. Listeners, thanks. Next week, 65's in the books. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks.